Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And today we're talking about the 19th century poet, playwright and queer icon Oscar Wilde. Before we get started, we have a few content warnings for this episode. We will be talking about period-typical homophobia and period-typical misogyny. We'll also be discussing relationships with significant age gaps, and there will be brief mentions of murder and suicide. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to hear, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other episodes. First things first, we would like to thank the Mad Prince of Denmark on Tumblr and Alyssa who emailed us suggesting this episode, although of course we were going to talk about Oscar Wilde at some point, uh, as well as some anonymous people on Tumblr who we cannot thank more specifically. As you have probably guessed from the title and description of this podcast, this is the first of two episodes we're going to do on Oscar Wilde. The second part will be coming out on the 15th of October. The first episode, the one we're doing today, is going to cover from the start of Oscar Wilde's life up until when he writes Dorian Gray and meets Alfred Douglas. So I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger. And then next time we're going to talk about his relationship with Alfred Douglas and his career as a playwright and the famous trial and then the end of his life. So basically all of the good stuff that everyone knows Oscar Wilde for, we're not doing today. (laughs) Uh, So feel free to come back next time. Yeah, so like Oscar Wilde is a huge deal to many, many, many queer people. Yeah. Are either of you amongst those queer people? How do you feel about Oscar Wilde? How much do you feel you know about Oscar Wilde? I don't think I'm like as into Oscar Wilde as a lot of general queer people that I see on like Tumblr, for example, are into Oscar Wilde. Like I've read a couple of his plays and Dorian Gray and like... I've heard of him, but I've never looked into his life or anything. What about you, Irene? Yeah, honestly, I feel about the same. I read Dorian Gray. I thought it was great. I'm glad I don't have to defend Dorian Gray to you guys. <laughs> no, it was a good book. It was a good book. Yes. I've exactly. read some of his stuff and, like, definitely heard a bunch of, like, pithy quotes assigned to him. Mm. <laughs> some of which were presumably not really things he said. Yeah. Because that's usually how oh, that goes. How is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm vaguely aware that he did some socialist activism, but I have no idea what or in what way. Presumably Presumably there are a bunch of people out there who are quite like deeply invested in Oscar Wilde as queer people and we're mm. not two of them. <laughs> I'm not surprised by that. That's kind of the impression I had of you of like not <laughs> the biggest Oscar Wilde fan in the world. That sounds like I'm saying you don't like him. But yeah. I mean that like genuinely. I, on the other hand, am an immense Oscar Wilde fan. I'm actually a bit past my heyday as an Oscar Wilde fan. <laughs> From the ages of, like, 12 to 15, I had a photo of him that I printed out at school up on my wall. This was an illicit thing to do. I had to get past the, like, firewall at school to do it because his Wikipedia (laughs) page was banned for pornography. Oh, wow. He was one of kind of, like, half a dozen kind of, like, queer references that I had. It was just kind of, like, Glee and Oscar Wilde at that point in my life. Uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, those those were dark days. So I developed, like, an intense devotion to Oscar Wilde. Yeah. And then, like, you know, the world opened up to me as I got older and got my own internet connection and things (laughs) like that. But I still have a big soft spot for Oscar Wilde. Yeah. I'll Uh, be curious to hear when we finish how researching Oscar Wilde for this podcast has changed your opinions on Oscar 
world. I don't feel like it really has all that significantly. Okay. Because when I was like 12 to 15, I read two of the biographies that I read for this. So you haven't learned a bunch of new facts? No. Like, you know, I definitely sort of nuanced opinions that I... I was using nuance as a verb there. I don't know how legitimate <laughs> that is. Not very well. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't think I really had it in me to understand, like, art theory mm-hmm. at that age. Don't truly have it in me now. But, but like, you're about a little to bit more. It. Yeah, you know. <laughs> like, explain might be a strong word. I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> Um, speaking of the biographies, shall we do this boring section of the intro yeah. where we talk about the biographies? So I read four for these two episodes, and it's really interesting to me about how, given how prominent Oscar Wilde is as a like cultural and literary figure of the late 19th century, that I don't think there is a good biography of Oscar Wilde. So modern Oscar Wilde scholarship is generally regarded as starting with Richard Elman's biography of Oscar Oscar Wilde, which was published in the 80s. It's huge. It brought a lot of kind of like new facts into general circulation that weren't collected previously. When you say it's huge, do you mean it's like a physically large volume or do you mean it's a huge deal in Oscar Wilde scholarship or like both? I mean both of those very vehemently. Okay. (laughs) It's large enough that reading it on the train was like physically prohibitive. (laughs) I see. Yeah. (laughs) Is this the one where you had to get a separate volume of corrections? Yeah, that brings us to the fact that I had to get a second volume of corrections. (laughs) So, you know, Richard Allman wrote this book. It arrived on the scene. Everyone was very, very excited. And very quickly, people started to realize that it contained a lot of factual errors. This, I think, isn't something that we should be, like, too critical of him for. Like, some critical, sure. Mm -hmm. But also just, like, anyone who kind of, like, pioneers a bunch of knowledge inevitably makes a bunch of errors. It's just how it is. You know, we can move on. And a scholar called Hurst Schroeder put out a little pamphlet of corrections in hopes that it would spur the publishing company to release a second edition corrected. And that didn't happen and Richard Elman passed away and so he enlarged that book of corrections and it's now 300 pages long. That's too many pages. (laughs) I think it's time they published a second edition. Yeah, it hasn't happened. I mean, like, there have been editions of it but there hasn't been a, like, thoroughly revised Mm -hmm. edition of it. And the reason why this is really a problem is that Richard Ellman's biography is very widely available. I didn't get it from an academic library. I just got it from my local library. Hurst Schroeder's corrections are not available publicly in Australia. Did you find them? I got our friend Gabby, whom I love with every inch of me, to get it from New Zealand for me via our university library. So I would assume it's more easily available in Europe and the Mm -hmm. UK where Hirsch Schroeder and Oscar Wilde are from and perhaps in America as well but for the rest of the world it's going to be as hard to get as it is here if not harder it's also out of print the Mm. author's website says you can like send him a letter and like 40 euros and he'll send you a copy but I I don't (laughs) know if this website is even current so like that's difficult so that's the first one yeah and then most biographies following that have relied very very heavily on Richard Elman or they've taken a completely different tactic and not been a general biography of Oscar Wilde. They've been a biography of Oscar Wilde as an Irishman or whatever. Oh, yeah. And so you see a lot of opinions expressed in later biographies that are just Richard Elman's opinions. So mm-hmm. I read, for example, Barbara Belford's biography of Oscar Wilde, which was published in 2011 because it was the most recent one I could find. And yeah, a lot of it, when I read Elman's, I was like, that's just what Barbara Belford said. <laughs> And then I read two that were specifically 
specifically like gay biographies. One by Jeff Nanakawa, which was for a significant gay and lesbian people biography series. And one by Neil McKenna. Okay. So if you see on the internet salacious details about Oscar Wilde's sex life and opinions about sex and so forth, more often than not, that traces to Neil McKenna's The Secret Life of Oscar Wilde. Oh, I've heard of this book. People who are interested in Oscar Wilde specifically because of his sexuality really like it because it's like... Salacious? Well, because it's focused entirely on that. Mm -hmm. But it's also just like scholarly quite bad. (laughs) Basically, like any detail that possibly relates to Oscar Wilde's sex life he's just kind of like thrown in there regardless of the source and he's not very critical towards any of it and he kind of makes a lot of things about sex and kind of like extrapolates opinions that I don't think he can really justify so who is Neil McKenna he's a journalist Okay. All of that is just to say that Oscar Wilde's scholarship is such a time and a bit of a mess. And uh, good luck if you want more information after this. (laughs) Don't trust Neil McKenna. Godspeed. (laughs) Okay. Shall we begin the episode properly now? So, on October 16th, 1854, in Dublin, a baby was born that was named Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Wills Wilde. That's quite a name for one small baby. (laughs) And also, it's his birthday quite soon. It is his birthday quite soon. Maybe I timed when we released these. (laughs) I think that his name is probably the first indication that his parents were not the people you would expect to produce Oscar Wilde. So both of his parents are noted for being fantastic conversationalists which is one of Oscar Wilde's main personality traits. Yeah. His mother is this amazing, dramatic, theatrical character of a woman. She was born Jane Elgie, uh, and she became known by the name Speranza, which is Italian for hope. And she wrote pamphlets and poetry in favor of Irish rebellion, signing them with that. And she is just generally known for being very, like, dramatic in public and wearing really insane costumes about and stuff like that. Sounds uh, good. Which her son will also do. A thing that I liked about her that has no bearing on this episode is that she was fluent in German, French, and Italian, and she pretended to be fluent in more through liberal use of a dictionary, <laughs> and she just published things that she had <laughs> translated from other languages by essentially looking every word up in a dictionary <laughs> and writing a poem around that, I guess. <laughs> okay. Hey, that sounds like when people try to use Google Translate to get tattoos. <laughs> His father, William Wilde, was an eye and ear surgeon. Less exciting. Which has less implications in Oscar Wilde's life. I yeah. feel he does no surgery, some might say. But, it, you know, he's very interesting. He wrote foundational texts in this field. He founded a hospital. He was also an archaeologist and a folklorist, and he would go around to his patients in various parts of Ireland and collect superstition and folklore from them and then publish that. Okay, Um, that's cool. Yeah, so he's also an Irish nationalist. And this is part of his efforts to preserve this, like, traditional knowledge of Ireland. I'm intrigued to hear about how Oscar interacts with Irish nationalism. Yeah, that is a very interesting thing to think about with Oscar. We're not actually going to get into it too much until the second episode, but we will get into it. Okay. The last thing I wanted to know about William Wilde is that a lot of the antiquities that are now in the National Museum of Ireland were collected by him. Cool. Okay. So that's quite cool. Yeah, so Oscar grows up in the household of these two, like, very strong characters and it's a hub for a lot of interesting 
interesting people in society in sort of various like literary fields and in Irish nationalism and in academia and so forth and this is the conversation that he grows up hearing. When he is not quite 10 he's sent off to boarding school. After boarding school he receives a scholarship to Trinity, Trinity College Dublin in 1871 and then he receives a scholarship to go to Oxford in 1874. Okay. So he's a clever boy. Even from his school years he's remembered as being just very good at talking and very good at telling stories. So he'll tell these stories that are built on everyday life but that are exaggerated wildly into being a better tale. A friend from his school days noted that there was always something in his tellings of tales to suggest that he felt his heroes were not really being taken in. Like, I just feel like there's a real difference between, like, lying to deceive someone and lying knowing that someone's in on it for mutual oh, enjoyment. I see. You know so I mean? he's just telling kind of over-the-top dramatic mm. stories that everyone knows aren't true. Yeah. But yeah. 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 And, and just kind of, like, in establishing his character. I thought that was a good distinction to make. So he seems to just essentially talk nonsense a lot of the time. Like, he'll just say <laughs> things because they're interesting or provocative without necessarily kind of thinking through mm-hmm. them Deemed. very much. But they're often quite beautiful nonsense. <laughs> this sounds like it makes him a hard kind of person to pin down, though. Yes. Like in terms of his opinions or whatever. It sure does. It does make it very difficult to understand what he really thinks. And it's also that thing a little bit like what we had with Horace Walpole, where when you have just like so many words from someone, mm. pinning down what they thought becomes a lot more difficult inherently because of Obviously, people do just kind of, like, change their opinions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a good quote of his that encapsulates that is one that he said to Arthur Conan Doyle, which goes, Between me and life, there is a mist of words always. I throw probability out of the window for the sake of a phrase, and the chance of an epigram makes me desert truth. Okay, so he acknowledged this about himself. Yeah, but also just, like, words. (laughs) He just would have been so good to listen to speak. And he gets invited to parties just because people are like, We should invite Oscar Wilde. He'll show up and talk. <laughs> but for now, he's still in his schooling days. He's very, very clever, as I mentioned, from his mm-hmm. schooling days. He is an astoundingly fast reader. He's apparently able to skim a book in half an hour and then give an accurate plot summary. He's okay. also apparently able to read, like, both facing pages at the same time. Can he, I- like, dislocate his eyeballs? <laughs> <laughs> move their eyeballs independently. That's a terrifying thing to picture. (laughs) (laughs) I'd never heard anyone say that he could do that. (laughs) But how else? I don't know. Maybe it's not true. I was going to say, I don't feel like that's true. But isn't it like a good thing to say? It is a good thing to say. We're already working in Oscar Wilde logic. Where we really see his intelligence, however, is in the classics. Does he ruin his eyesight at Oxford? No, he doesn't. Wow. He doesn't do a ton of work at Oxford. Okay. I think there's definitely an advantage being able to skim a book in half an hour and give a solid plot summary, which saved him from doing a lot of uni work. Yeah. And he also is like fluent in ancient Greek. So I presume that applies to ancient Greek. Yeah. Presumably he must have learned ancient Greek at some point, which might oh, no, must he... have taken some work. Yeah, okay, yeah, I guess. But he's a <laughs> child then and he's forced upon him, I guess. Oh, I don't right. know. Yeah. And he was just a very good translator of Greek in general. It was noted by the biographers that I read that he was able to sort of preserve the poetry and the rhythms of Greek at the expense of a literal translation in a mm-hmm. way that other students struggled with. Mm, um, yeah. And an example was the phrase pontos atrugatos which appears in Homer. Pontos means sea. That's easy. Atrugatos is an adjective meaning something like yielding no harvest or unfruitful. And the literal translation that Elman gives is the sea from which one gathers no grapes. Oscar translated it as the unvintageable sea. <laughs> unvintageable? 
<laughs> Which I think is lovely. <laughs> And also funny. You're correct. It is it's, quite funny. Anyway. Yes. Anyway, so yes, he goes off to Trinity and then Oxford and he continues to be clever there. But he also doesn't really apply himself very much. He isn't mm-hmm. particularly studious. He's just very, very smart. To some degree, this might have been a pose. You know, like he wanted to seem like he was never studying. He oh, didn't want yeah, to be yeah. seen in the library. Yeah. And things like that. But to some degree, it isn't. He went off to Greece, for example, over the break with his tutor from Trinity, Mahaffey, when he was at Oxford. And he was meant to come back in term for classes to start as you do and he doesn't <laughs> yeah and he wrote to his tutors saying seeing Greece is really a great education for anyone and will I think benefit me greatly and Mr. Mahaffey is such a clever man that it is quite as good as going to lectures to be in his society and he is suspended and fined half his scholarship for the year fair enough this isn't to say that he doesn't like being in Oxford though in De Profundis which is a text that he wrote in prison we will talk about it next episode when he'll be in prison he wrote that the two great turning points of my life were when my father sent me to Oxford and when society sent me to prison. I mean, I feel like not doing a lot of work at uni, but still feeling that it was a great and formative experience is fairly universal. <laughs> yeah. 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 We're all having flashbacks to the last like five-ish years of our lives. Is yeah, that what's happening? Like... <laughs> the bludging classics. <laughs> what what that's like. <laughs> He explores a bunch of different social activities while he's at Oxford. For example, he's briefly involved with a rowing team, but he's dismissed after being determined to keep a very leisurely gentleman's <laughs> pace as opposed to rowing very fast. He's also exhorted to keep a straight back while rowing and replies, I'm sure the Greeks never did so at Salamis. <laughs> Salamis being a famous sea battle from the Persian Wars. He kind of sounds like an obnoxious man. Like, yeah, but we don't have to hang out with him. We just get to read about him being witty, so it's fine. That's true. That's true. It does seem like people either get, like, intensely devoted to him and think he's great or are, like, that guy. That doesn't <laughs> surprise life. me. Yeah, yeah. He all. is a very polarizing man. He would later be asked what types of exercise, what type of outdoor games he enjoyed, and replies, I'm afraid I play no outdoor games at all, except dominoes. I sometimes play dominoes outside French cafes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I liked that a lot. His most important interest while he's at Oxford, however, and also after Oxford, is not a sport, but an intellectual and artistic movement, aestheticism. So the popular line of thinking about art of the Victorian period is that art's function in society is to essentially play a moral role. Art succeeds or fails on how successfully it provides a moral message. Aestheticism was very directly opposed to this. It believed that art had nothing to do with morality whatsoever and that the quality of art instead depended on its beauty Mm -hmm. and the success of art on the pleasure that its beauty evoked in the person who consumed it. Okay. I don't feel I'm in either position here. Okay. Aestheticism's general goals, what it's about, Mm -hmm. uh, is encapsulated in the motto, art for art's sake. And this is seen as quite dangerous at the time. It means essentially that any idea, no matter how immoral, can be celebrated and accepted in art if you accept the aesthetic point of view. Like, I feel there's a sort of complicated middle position there where there's also a value of art which is not beautiful but raises some idea or explores something that is not beautiful or moral and is still valuable. I mean, I think that... 
art is inevitably going to express social points of view and moral messages, mm. regardless of whether you're aiming for it to or not. So the followers of this movement, the aesthetes, didn't just experience this as a philosophy or a way of making the art they made, but also as a general set of guidelines for life. And they advocated surrounding yourself with beauty and just pursuing pleasure in life. This fits with the image of Oscar Wilde that I have. This explains Oscar Wilde. I feel like you already understood something of aestheticism just by your general impressions of Oscar Wilde. (laughs) They also become associated with a signature clothes style that is a bit androgynous and favors longer hair Mm -hmm. and sort of languid attitude. (laughs) The literature is often full of very florid descriptions. It's very purple prosy and they are often condemned and satirized by the media of the time on basis of all of these things. Oscar becomes the poster child for aestheticism and he is regularly satirized in caricatures by magazines such as Punch, which is the most famous satirical magazine of the Victorian times. Has he left uni yet? He's developing all of this at uni and he's already known for this at uni, Mm -hmm. but his notoriety continues to flourish as he leaves it, okay. uh, which we'll get into in just a moment. Yeah, no, my question there was really just that kind of, what has he done to make him worthy of the attention of magazines at this point? Well, yeah, that is a question that people had at the time. And I'll talk about <laughs> that in a moment as well. But I just wanted to, I guess, tell a few more like fun little anecdotes and then talk about some gay stuff, if that's okay. That is, that is fine. Definitely allowed. While he's at Oxford, his clothes are already causing quite a stir. For example, he wears a coat to a gallery opening that is made of this sort of like bronze colored material and the back Mm -hmm. is shaped like a cello. Wow, okay. And it causes as much discussion as the paintings. That's very good. And yeah. I would like somebody to remake that coat. It can be difficult for us to understand just like how big a deal a coat like that is. Like we mm. would be like, oh, that's a notable coat, but it wouldn't be like offensive morally to us. But like basically the problem is, or part of the problem is that the affectations that are a part of aestheticism are seen as being quite effeminate and therefore they're an attack on contemporary masculinity, which yeah. is not at all on. One day, a offended by this, four students decide that they're going to beat him up and smash his furniture. Okay. And a crowd comes to watch this happen. Oscar Wilde was six foot three and quite physically powerful. He instead beats all of them up and invites the watching crowd to come back to the rooms of the young men who had tried to beat him up and to help themselves to their drinks. And they do that. That is great. Yeah, it is pretty great. That was like not the period typical homophobia story that I was expecting. <laughs> I'm glad. That was a much yes. better story. Speaking of period typical homophobia, so we don't really know a lot about what Oscar Wilde thinks and feels about his sexuality at this point in his life. Boarding schools, of course, have quite a reputation for homosexuality. It's also common for queer men to feel a connection to classics. <laughs> Classics is incredibly important to the upper classes of the day. And also for many of these men, classics would have essentially provided the only positive context for their sexuality that they could find. Lytton Strachey, uh, for example, who lived a bit later and who we've talked about before in the context of the Bloomsbury's, so in, for example, the John Maynard Keynes episode, read Plato's Symposium at 16 and felt, quote, a rush of mingled pleasure and pain, end quote, and also, quote, Surprise, relief, and fear to know that what I feel now was felt 2,000 years ago in Glorious Grace. I feel like this is exactly like when you stuck a picture of the Wild on your wall at 16. Younger, but yes. I mean, it's that ugly, like, for God's sake. <laughs> 
Oscar Wilde essentially later uses the word Greek as like a byword for male homosexuality or for male beauty. And he's already using the word Greek kind of like that when he's at Oxford. So for example, he describes one of the rowers at Oxford and says, his left leg is a Greek poem. Which his is, left leg? Yeah. What's wrong with his right leg? I don't know. I mean, maybe it's something to do with like how it was positioned in the boat or something. I don't care. <laughs> And, like, that's obviously a gay comment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's not a comment you make straightly yeah. about your Straightly. Friend. In 1877, so while he was at Oxford, he also wrote a poem. And some lines from that poem go, A fair slim boy not made for this world's pain, with hair of gold thick clustering around his ears. Pale cheeks worn no kiss had left its stain, red underlip drawn in for fear of love, and white throat whiter than the breast of a dove. Four years later for publication, he changed this to be about a girl. So it seems that he's, like, some aware while he's at Oxford. We won't get into it until a bit later, but the general kind of accepted tradition in scholarship is that he doesn't start having sexual relationships with men until, like, much later in his life. But anyway, to return to the fact that he's doing a classics degree right now, ostensibly, he receives a first in both of his big classics modules, which astonishes everyone, including himself. And us. I I had confidence in him. He didn't go to class for a semester because he was in Greece. (laughs) Despite, again, being very clever and now quite academically accomplished, he's mm. quite directionless. A lot of his friends Relatable. at Oxford... Yeah, yes. Sorry. <laughs> Carry I on. mean, we're making this podcast right now, not having careers, so... Yeah, <laughs> true. A lot of his friends who are at Oxford, who seem to be fairly typical of young men at Oxford at the mm-hmm. time, have essentially had their careers planned out for them by their families and are there as a step towards being a lawyer or a civil servant. Yeah. And Oscar Wilde has no such plans for himself. Do his parents have plans like this for him? His mother hopes that he goes into the government. His father passes away while he's at Oxford. He said that, I won't be a dried up Oxford Don anyhow. I'll be a poet, a writer, a dramatist. Somehow or other, I'll be famous, and if not famous, I'll be notorious. And well, then he goes off to London. When he gets to London, he sort of sets about becoming a celebrity. So he goes to the theatre a lot to see plays, but also because it's somewhere that he can be seen. And he's very, very talked about because he has this very ostentatious personality and clothing, as we've discussed. So, for example, someone passing him in the street once remarked, there goes that bloody fool Oscar Wilde, <laughs> and he declares in delight, it's extraordinary how soon one gets known in London. <laughs> Like, oh, they know who I am. They think I'm a fool. Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan is at dinner with him one night. And Gilbert said to Oscar, I wish I could talk like you. I'd keep my mouth shut and claim it as a virtue. (laughs) To which Oscar Wilde replied, oh, that would be selfish. I could deny myself the pleasure of talking, but not to others the pleasure of listening. (laughs) Wow. so good. I love this. I love him. Like, he's the worst, but I love him. He is the worst, but, like, everything you've read that he's said has been great. Yes. But, yeah, as you mentioned before, he hasn't really done anything for how famous he's becoming. And an actress remarked at this time of his life, what has he done, this young man, that one meets him everywhere? (laughs) Oh, yes, he talks well, but what has he done? He's written nothing. He does not sing or paint or act. He does nothing but talk. I don't understand. Accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so he self-publishes a volume of poems. (laughs) Okay. I agree, though. (laughs) 
She's at that phase of being a directionalist 20-something self-publication. And these are absolutely savaged by critics. <laughs> They're labelled both kind of like bland and unoriginal, but also on very immoral topics. So they're kind of the worst of both worlds in the okay. eyes of the public. What sort of immoral topics do you mean? Ah, uh, you know, like you described a statue as being hot. Yeah, <laughs> that's not very immoral. <laughs> yeah, just like very like sensual and quite oh, erotic yeah. and so forth. Like not erotic yeah. in terms of any actual like se- sexual content, but yeah. just very like Greek and like, ugh. <laughs> you know. His left leg was a Greek poem. Yeah. So basically, yeah, like he poses as being very self-important and then he puts out this kind of like kind of bad volume of poems and people are just sort of annoyed. Um, <laughs> Punch publishes a caricature of him labelled the poet is wild but his poetry is tame. <laughs> Vicious. Yeah, I mean Punch is like awful to him. I mean that is Punch's job. That is unfortunately Punch's job. Gilbert and his good pal Sullivan satirise Oscar in their opera Patience as essentially like this face of the aesthetic movement Mm -hmm. and this goes to America and is put on in America and people in America therefore become quite interested in aestheticism (laughs) and so an offer comes for Oscar to have an all expenses paid tour of America lecturing to people about aestheticism what so people can essentially just see him being an aesthete how why (laughs) for money there is significant public interest and therefore some like touring company presumably sees this as a money making opportunity okay I just love the fact that there are enough people in America who are like, I would pay to see this guy who self-published a mediocre volume of poetry, <laughs> but wears colourful pants. Thousands of people. Yeah, like, wow. Thousands of people. He ends up doing 140 lectures oh, in wow. 160 days. He's just doing so well at just being mm. like, I'm going to get famous just by wearing clothes. And Having a talking. personality, yeah. He arrives in New York on the 2nd of January, 1882. He allegedly stated at customs when asked if he had anything to declare, I have nothing to declare except my genius I've heard that one yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it's one of those ones where we can't really like trace it to any particular source but like it's so good that I was like oh where they can go in yeah so he goes around and he does 140 lectures on aestheticism and like its principles and how one can apply them to how they decorate their homes and so it's like this is the kind of curtains you should have and they're like oh wow your pants are hilarious <laughs> And yeah, like people enjoy it quite a bit. He starts off as a, quite a mediocre lecturer just because he's quite young still and lecturing is, it's a skill that you have to develop. But, you know, he develops that talent over these 140 lectures. And obviously, like, it continues for quite a while. Like, they're still selling out. Mm. So he's, like, traveling around America? Yeah, travels all around America, also up into Canada. There's a lot of stories you could tell about those days, but I'm going to tell you two of them. Story number one, he visits Leadville, Colorado, which is the Silver capital of Colorado and he is lowered down into the matchless mine to speak to the miners there about aestheticism just yeah to like hang out and talk about art and stuff but yeah in any case they open up a new shaft with a drill and they call it the Oscar (laughs) and he dines with them at the bottom of the mine he said of this meal the first course was whiskey the second whiskey the third whiskey all the courses were whiskey (laughs) but still they called it supper And they're quite impressed that this, like, quite effeminate Englishman can, like, hold his own at drinking with them, and they quite like it. That's good. good. The only thing I can think of is, like, but they can't see his clothing in a mine because it'll be dark. Well, he actually, like, puts on baggy trousers and kind of, like, tucks up his long hair and so forth because people are like, they will shoot you dead. And he was like, nah, I'm going to go hang out with them, but maybe turn it down a little. He also, while he is in this general part of America, goes to a casino and notices a sign on the piano that says, please don't shoot the pianist. He is doing his best. (laughs) And referring to this remark, Oscar said that this was the, quote, only rational method of art criticism I've ever come across. (laughs) 
The second story is the time that he met Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman being one of the most famous American poets ever. The canonical American poet. Oscar was quite a big fan of Walt Whitman's. He had heard his verses from childhood from his parents. And so Walt Whitman hears that Oscar is talking about how great he is and is like, oh yeah, you can come to tea. And so Oscar shows up at his house and he greets him with, I've come to you as one with whom I have been acquainted almost from the cradle. And Walt Whitman's like, ooh, quite impressed with that. Uh, and so they have this really lovely conversation. They talk for about two hours. They drink a bottle of Whitman's homemade elderberry wine. They finish the bottle and Whitman tells Oscar that he is going to call him by his first name. He's going to call him Oscar. Oscar puts his hand on Walt's knee and says he likes that very much. Okay. They go into Whitman's den. Den. <laughs> yeah, it was called a den. His man cave. His man cave. They go into Walt Whitman's man cave and hang out more there and then before he leaves Walt Whitman gives Oscar milk punch to drink uh, which is milk mixed with whiskey which he drinks and does not care for at all Fair because enough. It's, it's abomination before God and man do you want to try some right now I have both of these things cocktail hours milk punch oh man if this episode reaches 2000 downloads I'll make a video of us drinking milk punch yeah yeah let's okay. do it the next day Walt Whitman spoke to the Philadelphia press and described Oscar as being quote a great big splendid boy so frank and outspoken and manly I don't see why such mocking things are written of him he has the English society drawl but his enunciation is better than I ever heard in a young Englishman or Irishman before regarding Whitman Oscar said he is the grandest man I have ever seen the simplest most natural and strongest character I have ever met in my life I regard him as one of those wonderful large entire men who might have lived in any age strong true and perfectly sane he is the closest approach to the Greek we have yet had in modern times. So Oscar has a huge crush. Yeah. This interaction has been interpreted by some to mean that they had sex. By some, I mostly mean Daniel Mallory Ortberg on toast. (laughs) (laughs) So we do this kind of interesting thing in this podcast where I'm like, he's academic sources and he's also just like stuff that gets said in queer circles. Yeah. Because like you know the latter is what our audience is yeah and so I assume a lot of people who are listening to this are like oh yeah they're gonna talk about that time Oscar Wilde and Walt Whitman had sex and like so I need to address these academic sources and then also Daniel Wartberg's article on the toast (laughs) (laughs) then there's a bunch of other articles on the internet about that time Walt Whitman and Oscar Wilde had sex but they're all like so on the toast there was this article and then they kind of just reworded it yeah 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 so you know like that theory exists basically because of the reasons I've just listed in terms of like the hand on the knee and the quotes and things like that. Mm. I'm not that convinced by it personally. Like maybe they did, but... So my two, I guess, major things for why I'm not convinced are, first of all, that like you need to contend with the major academic understanding of Oscar Wilde not having had sex with men until like a while after this, which like, I'm sorry, but this is chronological, so we'll get into it later. (laughs) And also once he does start having relationships with men, he's like exclusively into younger men and Mm -hmm. more women's in his like 60s at this point. And like people's tastes change, that's not impossible. Especially if you have a giant academic crush on someone, like your standards of physical attractiveness can shift around bit sure and especially when this is one of his like early formative gay experiences yeah 
The second one, though, is that a lot of these quotes that are taken to be about, like, intensely suggestive gay behavior, such as the, like, hand on the knee, Mm -hmm. our sources for that are Walt Whitman speaking to a newspaper. And so I don't want to be like, oh, that's just how men were at the time. That's just normal affection. But he said it to a newspaper. I feel like if it was, like, a big incriminating lead kind of, like, obvious fade to black before he had sex with Oscar Wilde in his den, he wouldn't have said it to the Philadelphia press. So I remain on the fence about this one. I don't think it's as convincing as the toast. Which <laughs> I really like the toast and also Daniel. Daniel Lodberg, yeah, same. <laughs> you think he's wrong on this one I point? Do, I do think he's wrong on this one point. I love when you caption monk pictures, though. And also it's like a very entertainingly written article if you want to go read the article about Oscar Wilde and more women having sex. Like, you mm. know, make up your own mind, but it's a fun read. On the other hand... <laughs> Another gay man, George Ives, would remember that Oscar had told him that Walt Whitman had made no attempt to hide his sexuality from him, writing to George in a letter, the kiss of Walt Whitman is still on my lips. So... Yeah. I feel like they're both into each other. But... But, like, I don't think we have any... Not necessarily sexually. Yeah. Anyway, I think in any case, they shared a, like, lovely, very intimate evening. Yeah. And afternoon, whatever. And, like, you know... I don't think it's any less delightful if they didn't have sex. Have sex. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there were still two like literary greats who are both queer being like, you're the best. No, you're the best. Okay. Drink this whiskey and milk now. <laughs> I guess I will. <laughs> what a beautiful evening. Yes. So Oscar Wilde goes back to London and gets married. What? Yes. <laughs> His mother had been wanting him to get married for some time, but he had not yet done so. The closest he had previously come was when he was at Oxford, when he had had a kind of courtship period with a woman named Florence Belcombe, who instead married Bram Stoker, the writer of Dracula. In the spring of 1881, Oscar had met Constance Mary Lloyd. So this is before mm-hmm. he'd gone to America for a year to be famous. After that gathering, he remarked to his mother, by the by, Mama, I think of marrying that girl. And his mother immediately starts courtship protocols, sort of inviting her to like things they'll be at and stuff like that. And they end up getting married on the 29th of May, 1884. Okay, that was quick. Constance seems like a really good person. That's um, good. Like, she's, I don't know, it just seems like very earnest and devoted to like social good and to people she regards as important in her life and so forth. And she's too good for Oscar Wilde. Oh no. Oh no. Um, She's very well educated. She's interested in social reform. She's not particularly interested in like fashionable society. She's not part of that kind of like very like witty social milieu that Oscar Wilde is thriving in. And she is very into Oscar Wilde. She's convinced of his genius and that he's going to have a lot of impending success. And he doesn't yet have that. He's famous, but he's not Oscar Wilde yet. You know, he's not a successful writer yet. Before they'd married, Constance wrote to him, when I have you for my husband, I will hold you fast with chains of love and devotion so that you shall never leave me or love anyone as long as I can love and comfort you. So that's kind of the general tone of like how intense Mm. she is feeling. How about Oscar? Oscar also wrote quite intense letters in return to her. So he wrote, I feel your fingers in my hair and your cheek brushing mine. The air is full of the music of your voice. My soul and body seem no longer mine, but mingled in some sweet ecstasy with yours. I feel incomplete without you. So some view this marriage as being artificial, but at this stage, 
stage, that seems like genuine feeling. That sounds yeah. genuine, or if it's not genuine, then he's putting a lot of effort into faking it, and mm. I don't have a reason to believe he's doing that at the moment. Within a year of marriage, she has a baby. So he wrote in a letter, My wife has a cold, but in about a month we'll be over it. I hope it is a boy cold, but we'll love whatever the gods send. <laughs> She and wasn't a boy cold. Gave birth on the fifth of June, eighteen eighty-five, to a boy. They named him Cyril. No middle names. Oscar loved him. He wrote, "The baby is wonderful. It has a bridge to its nose, which the nurse says is a proof of genius. It also has a superb voice, which it freely exercises. Its style is essentially Wagnerian." <laughs> What a good oh, that's baby. beautiful. I that's... love how they gave Cyril no middle names. Like, was Oscar just like, look, I have like five and it's dumb. None of that. <laughs> well, on the 5th of November, 1886, their second child is born and they do give him middle names. They call him Vivian Oscar Bearsford. So I don't know what's going on here. And his younger son, Vivian, would remember how his father was kind of like very enthusiastic about playing with him when he did play with them. And he would like burst into the nursery and go down on all fours and like pretend to be a lion and then a horse and then a wolf. In a few years, he's going to publish a volume of children's stories called The Happy Prince, and the stories that he published in it were ones that he had developed in telling them to his children. The pregnancies were quite difficult, and Constance was often confined to bed. Oscar didn't enjoy the changes that pregnancy caused in her appearance, and he found her very unattractive from this point. He wrote, Desire is killed by maternity, passion buried in conception. And essentially, he sort of gets over Constance at this point. Like, okay, Oscar, you can't help doing that, but I wish you wouldn't be a misogynist about it. Mm. Like, it basically seems like he's like, oh, I'm still married. (laughs) And he doesn't really consider that, like, you know, you're in a partnership now. You need to kind of, like, adjust to what another person needs. As I've mentioned, although Constance is, you know, she's definitely an intelligent woman, she isn't intelligent in the way that Oscar's witty flamboyant social circle is. And so in those circles, she's viewed as being demure at best and as boring at worst. And what results is kind of like him not really changing his life at all and her just being left at home alone and not really seeing him very much. And so Mm. he's just absent from huge periods of time, kind of like Mm. living out of hotels and things like that. Despite the genuineness of his feelings early on, I'm not inclined to view this relationship as significantly impacting how I understand his sexuality. That's reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, like Constance isn't really all that important from this point forward. I think that he did genuinely quite like Constance and even love Constance early on, but I'm not convinced that this makes him just attracted to women. I could see it being him being very enthusiastic about the idea of like being able to be in love with a woman, and that fades very quickly. I mean, I think that's possibly one of those experiences that like many gay people have yeah. had where that kind of fooled themselves by social pressure and expectation. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And there is family pressure and there is social pressure. It's sometimes posited by scholars that, you know, Oscar Wilde married her to do away with ongoing rumors about his masculinity and his sexuality mm-hmm. and so forth. This isn't the kind of complete picture of like every potentially romantic and or sexual relationship he ever has with a woman. Uh, it's certainly the major ones, like kind of his brief relationship with Florence Belcombe and Constance. And then there's a handful of times where he's alleged to have visited a female sex worker and paid for sex 
at least one of those occasions, he specifically is recorded as saying that he disliked the experience. So after he's released from prison, he was taken by someone he knew to a brothel and he had sex with a woman. And he was asked what it was like and he said it was like cold mutton. <laughs> Which is an awful thing to say. Yeah. And also like, you know, that doesn't evidence a lot of interest in sex with women. <laughs> and given the intensity of his relationships with men and how kind of prevalent and all-consuming they become in terms of his attention and his life going forward, I find it difficult to view him as bisexual as opposed to gay the way that some people argue that he should be. And like, it's worth noting again that we're doing that thing where like, that's not something that scholars are really occupied with at all in my experience, having that debate about bi or gay, mm-hmm. but it is something that gets discussed a lot in just like circles of queer people who like Oscar Wilde because frankly people want to claim him as theirs. Yeah. And I can understand that impulse. And like, you know, I'm not gonna say for sure, but like, I'm also not gonna be like, hey guys, Oscar Wilde is actually bi, thanks. I feel like in the end that is sort of impossible to pin down one way or the other, like your evidence stands up. Mm. So, we're in 1887 to 1888-ish. So Oscar Wilde's in his like early to mid thirties for reference at this point. He's married, but he's kind of gotten over it. And along comes Robbie Ross, who is 17 years old. Oh dear. Okay. Yep. Already quite sure of his own sexuality and generally portrayed as being determined to seduce him. Hmm. At this point, Elman's portrayal of Oscar and therefore the kind of like general portrayal of him in scholarship is that he's kind of more or less aware of his sexuality and he's definitely very thoroughly enjoying male beauty and close male friendship but that he hasn't yet initiated actual like sexual relationships with anyone he's not gotten into that yet he also notes that both Robbie and Oscar told their friends that the first time they'd had sex had been Oscar's first time with another man but in any case this is our first definitely happened document sexual relationship that Oscar Wilde has with a man. Oscar wrote in a letter, who do you think seduced me? Little Robbie. Which is uncomfortable, but you know, like also a source. So there it is. Richard Ullman kind of depicts Oscar Wilde going along with this, quote, perhaps out of curiosity or caprice, which I'm going to call shenanigans on. You don't get to portray someone as being like, yeah, I'm definitely gay, but I'm not going anywhere with this yet. And then portray their first sexual encounter with a man as a kind of like, may as well. Wonder what that's like. Yeah. Um, For what it's worth, Neil McKenna understands Oscar Wilde's sexual experience quite differently up to this point. He understands Oscar to have had numerous sexual encounters up until this point with various men. His evidence for Oscar Wilde's previous sexual encounters are kind of just like, here's this man he was quite close to and here's a situation you could read into them having had sex in. So I didn't find that terribly compelling. He doesn't really explicitly rebut the whole Robbie Ross theory at all. It just kind of writes around it. I do think it's worth re-examining why we're so convinced that Robbie Ross is the first. Also, I think the way it's presented by, for example, Richard Elman, where it's like, you know, here is this young man who seduced Oscar, not the other way around, and Oscar mm. just kind of went along with it and kind of fell into this whole, like, sexual life. Obviously, it fits into a certain narrative about Oscar's sexuality. Yeah. Uh, we don't really have the thing in scholarship that we have with so many other queer historical figures where, like, until recently all the scholarship was like, no, they're definitely straight, and now we're like, but maybe they were gay. Because yeah. Oscar Wilde's whole thing is that he went to prison for having sex with men. So you don't see someone like Richard Ullman denying that, but you potentially nevertheless do still see a tendency to downplay. So as I've perhaps already indicated a bit, I find Ullman's depiction of this as, like, a little bit dodgy. I'm kind of prepared to 
to accept the basic like facts of like Oscar and Robbie started having sex and this was arguably Oscar Wilde's first time and Mm -hmm. whatever. But some of the facts I was confused by. So, for example, Elman mentions that Oscar's disinterested in anal sex and so they probably had oral and intercrural sex and like, sure, that seems plausible, but he didn't really cite anything. That's a weird thing to say without citations. There's always that conception that like, anal sex is peak gay sex. (laughs) It is the gayest sex, you know? And also Elman's writing in the 1980s. Gay sex is, again, a very charged topic at the time. Yeah. Just like discussing the way biographers have dealt with this, Belfort's account is seemingly based quite heavily on Elman's. I'm just going to read you this like little bit in full because I was just sort of like, what? Just again, in terms of like sources, please, maybe? Quote, a practicing homosexual, Ross recognized Wilde's <laughs> Sorry, I need. I the phrase practicing homosexual. Very funny. <laughs> yeah. Scholars use it weirdly often and every time it's funny. Like I, I see its use as a phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, you know, saying an active homosexual has different connotations. Yeah. You sometimes do need to be, like, gay and, like, you know, like, doing sex about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so In any case, continue. quote, a practicing homosexual, Ross recognized Wilde's need to fulfill his nature. They became lovers. A seduction in Wilde's vermilion trim studies surrounded by Hellenic mementos was convenient. Secondhand gossip about the encounter drifted down after Wilde's death, naming little Robbie Ross as a seducer. Okay, so... <laughs> the kind of like color in that quote about like the study and whatnot was like you're just like painting like what are you doing (laughs) this is in Oscar Wilde's house where his wife and children are and also where a 17 year old boy is with whom he has sex where did he find Robbie Ross we don't know I think okay uh, unfortunately he boards with them for a while when he's kind of preparing to go to Cambridge oh that's uncomfortable so there's just the 17 year old boy living in his house that he has sex with yeah I mean I don't really have anything to say about that other than that's inappropriate (laughs) I'm not gonna rebut that like I don't (laughs) know what you want from me (laughs) I mean I don't know a heap about this I wonder how inappropriate it would have been at the time in terms of age Mm. I mean I feel like a 17 year old girl living with them who an adult married man had sex with would have been viewed on as quite terrible yeah true but yeah like it is a thing where like there aren't any like social mores about homosexuality to kind of measure this up against at the time because the general social thoughts about homosexuality are that is a crime and you should be severely punished for it. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really matter if the person's 17. Did Constance know? It was generally understood no, not at this point. She finds out at some point obviously because her husband goes to prison for it. Yeah. But no, it's generally depicted that she doesn't know until quite close to the trial. Okay. Robbie goes off to Cambridge in 1888. He has quite a bad time of it there. He's dumped into the fountain by classmates with the support of his tutor in response to his aestheticism and possibly their understanding of his sexuality. Mm -hmm. He catches pneumonia and he leaves Cambridge. He comes out to his family shortly after that, leading to estrangement with them. And yeah, just kind of has a rough time of it for a few years. He stays in Oscar's circle of friends. He has a relationship with Robbie Ross on and off for a couple years. It's not any great massive love affair, but they remain friends for the rest of their lives and Robbie is quite devoted to Oscar. He's his literary executor after his death. We'll hear more of him. So he's not going to kind of like do a lot more in this episode, but he's around at all times. In any case, Oscar Wilde is definitely having sex 
with men now. From 1887 to 1891, he has his most prolific period as a writer. He's had two plays already, but we don't talk about those ones because they weren't successful. So he wrote two plays, he tried to have them produced, no one really wanted to produce them. One of them, maybe both of them, had like a very short run that no one really wanted to go to. They're not produced these days, they're not bought very well off. One's about a like Russian political assassination. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of intriguing. Yeah, I haven't read either of them. I was like, I could read them. And then I was like, no, no. <laughs> they are, it's worth noting, none of them comedies, which is what he's known for when he becomes a successful mm, Okay, yeah. Oh yeah, importance of being earnest. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I forgot that that occurred somehow. So he writes reviews, sometimes weekly reviews. He's the editor of a women's magazine for two years. He publishes fairy tales, essays and dialogues, a novel and a third play. So I mentioned before the collection of children's stories, The Happy Prince, which he publishes in 1888. This is the first one of his works to really be publicly successful. He is compared in review to Hans Christian Andersen, which is, you know, if you're writing fairy tales, pretty <laughs> decent. Yeah. yeah. He also writes, as I mentioned, several essays on various topics, often artistic topics, as you might be able to guess. I'm not actually going to go into these too much because we're going to talk about the picture of Dorian Gray in a minute. And that I think has enough discussion of how he represented Mm -hmm. art in writing. But if you want a relatively short, accessible piece of writing to kind of get an idea of how Oscar Wilde wrote and the sorts of things he wrote about, then having a go at one of the essays is probably not a bad idea. None of his work is really all that long, actually, though. Mm. So I guess read anything. I will briefly talk about one of his essays, The Soul of Man Under Socialism. Oscar had attended a lecture at the Fabian Society, which was led by activists such as George Bernard Shaw. And obviously the lecture was on socialism, and so he decided he was going to like sit down and write a work on socialism. <laughs> That's like less of a direct course than I make it out to be. It's not like he saw like one introductory YouTube video and was like, time for my manifesto. But, I mean, you know, yeah. like he was aware of socialism because of the political scene of the day. Yeah. He saw this lecture and was like, mm, I have thoughts. Oscar is sometimes quite intensely emotionally invested in social justice, but this interest is generally quite sporadic. It holds his interest sometimes and other times it doesn't. He made the comment, we're all more or less socialists nowadays. I think I'm rather more than a socialist. I am something of an anarchist. Uh, Okay. Which is just like, oh, okay, those are words that people still say. (laughs) You know, like, I would believe someone saying that to me now, you know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he writes this essay about socialism in which he argues that basically if society was to become socialist, it wouldn't lead to a very drab conformist society as sometimes people argued Mm -hmm. socialism would lead to and still do now with added historical examples. Um, (laughs) But instead that it would lead to one in which individuality would be able to flourish. One of the reasons he gives is that poverty essentially distracts from being able to live Reasonable. Yeah. Not only for those who are living it. So obviously if you're living in poverty, then you can't fully develop your own individuality. Mm. But also if you're not living in poverty, but there are people who are in society, then you have to do something about it. And mm. that's, okay. you know, time you could be spending on developing your own, uh, like, okay. poetry. <laughs> I mean, we can all agree that there would be more poetry in a utopian society. Like, that seems... Sure. And he also writes about how, like, in the contemporary society, and I guess it's still applicable to 
bourgeois society as we are not living in a socialist society today. People are tricked into thinking that having material wealth is like a substitute for having a personality. (laughs) (laughs) He also critiques charity in it as essentially addressing the symptoms rather than the causes of social problems caused by capitalism. True. Yeah. These are all pretty valid points so far. Like, I don't think he said anything I disagree with. Yeah, I feel like the thing that kind of undermines it is potentially less its content and more its wildly in tone. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) His argument that poverty prevents people from realizing their individual potential gets at what his ultimate aim is in writing this essay, which is writing about how a society that best suited the artistic pursuits that he felt people should be Mm. focusing on could be created. Uh, A scholar called Woodcock in uh, History he wrote of anarchism talked about how other writers who wrote on similar themes at the same time would write about art as quote a means to the end of social and moral regeneration but for wild art is the supreme end containing within itself enlightenment and regeneration to which all else in society must be subordinated george bernard shaw was asked what he thought of oscar wilde's essay and he said it was very witty and entertaining but had nothing whatever to do with socialism I mean, I see what you mean then about it's wildly in tone undermining it. Potentially, yeah. There's a lot of kind of back and forth about the extent to which Oscar Wilde is a serious political figure, which I've definitely led into, but again, which I think we would be better to return to towards the end of the second episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because the ultimate moment in which people debate whether or not Oscar Wilde is a political figure is regarding his behaviour during his trial. So moving on with other stuff that Oscar Wilde was just like churning out, he wrote in 1889 the portrait of Mr. W.H. So Shakespeare existed. We're all familiar. And he wrote some sonnets. And these sonnets are dedicated to a Mr. W.H. This is in the real world. This isn't in like fiction that yeah. Oscar Wilde wrote to be clear. Yeah. And there are a lot of theories among Shakespearean scholars about who this Mr. WH is, and one of them, for which I would like to be clear, there is no real evidence, is that it's to a man called William Hughes. And Wilde portrayed this William Hughes as Willie Hughes, a young actor who Shakespeare was in love with. Sorry, is William Hughes a real man? Or did Shakespeare scholars just make him up? It's made up. Okay. So basically, there are puns in the sonnets on the word will and the word use, as in like colours, like the use of it. And so the argument is that they're referencing WH and his name was William Hughes. It's not any good. Um, (laughs) Shakespeare calls it in 2D. Yeah, this was quite an old theory as well. Like, this is from, like, a few centuries ago. Oh, okay. So it's not... Like, obviously, it had to be around by the time Oscar Wilde was born. But yeah, I don't say this is like... So here's an interesting possibility about the dedicatee of Shakespeare's sonnets is just set up for the conceit of this piece of fiction. Okay. Isn't Billy Hughes an Australian Prime Minister? I knew that name sounded familiar. (laughs) Anywho. So Oscar Wilde writes this short story slash novella on this theory in which he depicts young men essentially searching for proof that Willie Hughes existed. Mm-hmm. This is a very overtly queer piece of work, to be clear, mm-hmm. uh, if that wasn't already clear. So part of what happens in this story is, like, periodic declarations by the various young men in this story that they mm-hmm. believe in Willie Hughes, aka, like, they believe in the theory of Willie Hughes. Yeah. And Oscar Wilde gave a copy of this story to a young man named Clyde Fitch, who he was in a relationship with, or who was trying to get into a relationship with at that time. Clyde sounds pretty great. He, just so we remember the kind of clothes <laughs> everyone in this was wearing, wore things such as a black and white check suit, 
Purple cravat, white hat, silver walking stick. Wait, is this all one outfit? Yep, that's an outfit. Doesn't it go together, though? I was going to say, I have, like, a vivid picture of that outfit, and it's the kind of outfit that you see on, like, a dapper butch look. Yeah, like, it's kind of working, but it's just a lot. It is a lot. Like, every, every... I was going to say every aesthetic choice. (laughs) And, like, yeah, not wrong. In this is a lot. And... Clyde adored this story. He wrote to Oscar that, you know, he read it and he loved it so much that while he was reading it, he didn't notice that all of his limbs had fallen asleep. (laughs) And he wrote to Oscar declaring that he also believed in Willie Hughes. Like, I think what that's meant to be is less of a, like, hey, yeah, this theory seems academically sound and more of a, like, I wholeheartedly endorse the sentiments Mm -hmm. about homosexuality that you are expressing in this work of fiction, except phrased much more emotionally. And yeah, so like they have a love affair for a while. Clyde isn't ultimately very important, but I liked him because of his clothes as well. He wrote some really nice love letters to Oscar, and in one of them he wrote, Invent me a language of love, you could do it, which I disliked. Yeah. Hmm. He intensely admires Oscar, he really loves Oscar. Oscar isn't as into him, yeah. Yeah. which is awkward and sad, and um, they break up after a while. Mm-hmm. And then Oscar gets with a young man named John Gray. So he's 12 years younger than Oscar, he's in his mid-20s. Okay. Which is okay. Yeah, both adults. Yeah. John Gray sounds generally quite impressive. He's born a working class carpenter's son. He's apprenticed as a metal turner and he basically just like studies in his spare time and works his way up into the civil service. Very oh. impressively. I'm very proud of him. Okay. Good on you, John. So okay. he's very intelligent and he's very ambitious and he's also very, very, very beautiful. I don't have the exact quote, but there's a quote recorded where some woman saw him just like out at the theater or something and was like, oh, I didn't know people could be that beautiful. (laughs) Wow. Okay. John Gray is gorgeous. And Oscar Wilde is like, John Gray is gorgeous. (laughs) I assume we have no pictures of John Gray. We do. They don't hold up to that. And I think it's just that thing where still images just kind of don't really portray how people look, unfortunately. And Oscar goes about courting John Gray. Part of the way he goes about courting him is naming the character in the novel that he is writing after him. So Mm. Dorian Gray, half his name is about this extraordinarily beautiful young man that Oscar Wilde is courting, and half of his name is after the Dorians, a.k.a. a tribe of ancient Greeks. So this is a name that implies homosexuality. So John Addington Simmons in his work A Problem in Greek Ethics, which is an early text about, like, gay stuff, basically. Mm -hmm. It's an early kind of, like, agitator for gay rights, for want of a better word. Quote, the Dorians gave the earliest and most marked encouragement to Greek love. We'll get into, like, the actual origins of pederasty in ancient Greece in its own episode. Like, this isn't academically too sound. (laughs) Basically just, like, it's debated. But Um, that is the association of the word Dorian. Yeah, that's the association at the time of the Dorians were, like, the gay tribe. So, when he he called the book Picture of Dorian Gray. It was like, picture of this hot gay man I Picture know. of my gay boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this courting works. They get together. John sometimes signs letters to Oscar as Dorian. Okay. Um, Oscar writes to him my favorite quote from any of Oscar Wilde's love letters, Ooh. which is, the world is changed because you are made of ivory and gold. The curves of your lips rewrite history. That's, that's so much. Isn't it so much? <laughs> And this, I mean, brings us to discussing the picture of Dorian Gray. So Basil Hallwald is an artist and he paints this glorious, lovely portrait of a very beautiful young man named Dorian Gray. The third main character in this is this 
hedonistic, very kind of like witty, well-spoken man named Lord Henry Wotton. And in response to opinions voiced by him, Dorian Gray comes to wish that the painting would age instead of him. I mean, that seems a reasonable wish. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) And this begins to take place. Dorian falls in love with an actress called Sybil. And when he eventually rejects her, she kills herself. The painting begins to change to look cruel. The expression changes. He locks the painting up and he spends years indulging in every vice that he can think of, aka homosexuality. (laughs) Basil eventually confronts him about whether or not all of these terrible things he's heard about him are true, and Dorian shows him the painting, which has become so hideous as to be unrecognisable, except by the signature. Basil's horrified and Dorian stabs him to death. He eventually stabs the picture and cries out and the servants run in to find an old man dead next to a picture of their employer as they had lost a good story yeah yeah so i'm going to talk a little bit about how this came to be published it was commissioned by jm stoddart who was the editor of the magazine lippincott's monthly magazine in the same night he also picked up arthur conan doyle's a sign of four so a good night a nice dinner party for jm stoddart yeah when he eventually received the picture of dorian gray he found it to be very high quality but also he was alarmed by parts of it that he thought would offend his readership and so he cut a bunch of stuff out. Chief amongst this is the gay stuff. When Oscar started, after it was published in this magazine, to enlarge a publication as a novel, he added a bunch of stuff. He fleshed a bunch of stuff out. You know, he's allowed to take up more space because it's a novel instead of a serial in a magazine. Further stuff is also cut out to make it, again, more publicly acceptable. So the edition that's generally been around has yeah. been that second edition that was published as a novel. So twice censored. The original manuscript was published in 2011 for the first time. It became publicly available. I was going to say, I feel like the version that I read wasn't, it wasn't un-gay, but it wasn't that gay. Yeah. 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 Yes. So you would have read the 1891 edition, which is the twice censored. It was definitely before 2011 that I read this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also like any of those just sort of like nondescript, like Penguin Classics copies are that. Yeah. As opposed to the uncensored edition, which is this like huge, like the uncensored picture of Dorian Gray. (laughs) So you would have known. Yeah. It was not that. Yes. Uh, So to give some examples of what was cut, in cutting it for the first time, Stoddart cut the line describing the portrait, which reads, there was love in every line and in every touch there was passion, because he didn't want everyone to realise that Basil was gay for Dorian. However, he left in with slight edits the following passage, which was then cut for the 1891 Okay. This is Basil speaking to Dorian, again, on the subject of how gay Basil is for Dorian. (laughs) It is quite true that I have worshipped you with far more romance of feeling than a man should ever give to a friend. Somehow I have never loved a woman. I adored you madly, extravagantly, absurdly. Well, that was gay. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was <laughs> some gay prose. And as you can imagine, there were some public reactions to this. But there were also some public reactions to the morality or lack of morality that the public understood to be expressed by the novel's aestheticism. So Elman, our good friend, understood this text to be a criticism of aestheticism. Okay. He understood that its message was that, you know, just as Dorian kind of like engages in every kind of vice he can and experiences everything and then ultimately pays this terrible price and his soul is disfigured and he dies the message of the novel is that there is a great price to be paid for living the life of an aesthete Mm. okay i feel like that 
is, you know, a pretty valid statement. Nicholas Frankel, the editor of the recently published Uncensored Edition, thinks that Elman fundamentally misunderstood the novel. Frankel points out that Oscar never ceases to be an aesthete. He continues to live this life for his entire life. Mm-hmm. His novel is very much the product of aestheticism. It clearly has aesthetic influence over it yeah. and uh, displays aesthetic values. And Oscar Wilde certainly wasn't disapproving of pleasure or of like experiencing things in life. He wrote in De Profundis, which again, he wrote in prison. I don't regret for a single moment having lived for pleasure. I did it to the full as one should do everything that one does to the full. There was no pleasure I did not experience. I threw the pearl of my soul into a cup of wine. <laughs> But yeah, so there's a lot in it and influenced by contemporary aesthetic views about Mm. portraiture and interior decorating and things like that, if you're into that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I read it just picking out the gay stuff personally. He also understood his elaborate prose style as a form of decorative art and a rejection of the favoured literary realism of the time. Oscar would also say that he viewed the conclusion of a story where... Dorian kind of has his comeuppance in Elman's view as the story's central weakness. He Mm. said that, far from wishing to emphasize any moral in my story, the real trouble I experienced was that of keeping the extremely obvious moral subordinate to the artistic and dramatic effect. I think the morals were apparent. It's possible that he was like, well, if he just gets to live forever and be young and beautiful and drink a lot of wine and have a lot of sex, that's not going to make a novel. I guess I've got to put something. Yeah, like what happens in the novel does feel like the inevitable conclusion of the setup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's sort of my thought. It's the like obvious narrative arc. Mm. Frankel also argues that Dorian makes a crucial error in understanding that the portrait was a reflection of the truth of his soul, okay. which is also Elman's understanding of it. So according to aestheticism, art doesn't and cannot literally reflect reality. Mm-hmm. Instead, reality reflects art. If Dorian mm-hmm. had understood this, then the painting, according to Frankel's argument, would never have developed the hold over him that it did, and the novel okay. would not have ended the way that it did. So okay. Frankel's understanding is not that it's Dorian being an aesthete that destroys him, it's that he fails to be one, okay. in that he doesn't understand the aesthetic idea of the relationship between life and art, and he's destroyed by it. Okay that yeah i I mean mean, at the very least it's quite a neat argument yeah i'm willing to accept that as well (laughs) that's the thing with like arguments about art is someone's like this opinion and you're like oh yeah and someone's like this completely different opinion and you're like oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i mean like you know to be fair neither of you have read this novel in preparation for this episode yeah yeah so i'm not going to ask you to do like heavy literary criticism (laughs) of it don't worry that'll be another day on queer fiction yes I mean, the second one does feel a little bit more twisted to get to a point. Like, it feels less straightforward. But the first one didn't really line up with Oscar's view on the world. No. And also, if the argument is that, like, oh, this is, like, a bit convoluted, we've established the way this man talks. It's just kind of, like, elaborately and in circles towards beautiful and interesting ends. Yeah, when you started saying, the second one's a bit convoluted, I thought you were going to use that as an argument for that. That's kind of how I was going to think. Right, it's Fair. It's not so much I don't buy it, as I don't think it was probably his conscious intention. But I do think it's a, you know, a reasonable reading of the novel. Mm. Yeah. Also, if we're talking about Oscar's belief being that, you know, you create art for art's sake, I feel like that definitely holds with him just being like, this is a cool idea. This is a story I want to tell about, you know, a man who can live any vice he wants and have it all just Put absorbed in a painting, mm. rather than... 
I'm going to put a moral on this story. Mm. Like, the point of this aesthetic movement is that there's not a moral on stories, right? Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, does Frankel's theory become untrue if he didn't think about it and was just like, you know, it'd be sick as hell? Does it have to have been a conscious plan? No, not necessarily. I mean, at least I think he sat down to write a book about what power art can have over people. And all the ideas he had about the meanings of art would have fed into that book, whether he thought about them individually and consciously or not. And it may have been that he just wanted to write a book about the power art had over people and both options were plausible readings to him also. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like your analysis that he just thought this was a cool idea might actually be... <laughs> I think I stand by my analysis. Like, I think that from what little I've learned about aestheticism in the past two hours, <laughs> my analysis all... Good, good art history. <laughs> yeah. Shall we move on to what other people thought about it? People yes. who were writing reviews for newspapers. Contemporaries at the time. Good. Yes. Good. I imagine they hated it. So our first review, Mr. Oscar Wilde has again been writing stuff that are <laughs> unwritten. <laughs> Ooh. The Daily Chronicle called it a poisonous book, the atmosphere of which is heavy with the mephitic odours of moral and spiritual putrefaction. I didn't even know all those words. <laughs> mephitic has come up before in this podcast. I was quoting the band Cradle of Filth. <laughs> <laughs> In their song about Carmilla. Yes, I yes, I remember this. So what does the Daily Chronicle in response to Oscar Wilde and the <laughs> modern English heavy metal band Cradle of Filth have to come to? <laughs> yeah, so they hated it. Yeah, I thought they would they hate it. They absolutely hated it. So Frankel points out that a lot of these reviews have very similar kind of criticisms they make and language they use to make these criticisms Mm -hmm. uh, with a focus on unhealthiness, insanity, uncleanliness, and so forth, coupled with allusions to the possibility of criminal prosecution for Oscar and potentially also for Lippincott's magazine for publishing this. He understands this as coded references to the fact that the novel is, like, quite overtly gay and it also should be said that it's in response to reviews such as this that Oscar Wilde again edits it mm-hmm. for publication as a novel and again tones down the homosexual parts of this book yeah and so Frankel argues that all of that, the mm-hmm. way these reviews are written and so forth, quote, shows very clearly that many early British readers were cognizant of the ways in which the novel challenged conventional Victorian notions of masculine sexuality. So I really just wanted to end this section on really driving home, if it wasn't clear, how subversive this book was. Yeah. Because I, I do feel like, as with Oscar's clothes, it's difficult to fully comprehend that. Mm. It wasn't just outraged editors for the Daily Chronicle and the Scots Observer and so forth who were reading this book, however. It was also young men all over (laughs) England. Yeah. (laughs) An aspiring poet that Oscar knew, Lionel Johnson, uh, was at Oxford, and he read it and he adored it. And he recommended it to a friend of his, Alfred Douglas. (laughs) And Alfred was intrigued. And so Lionel gave him a copy and he read it 14 times in a row and demanded that he had to meet the writer. (laughs) Are you ending now? I am ending now. (laughs) Well, what a cliffhanger. Okay. Okay. So, will Alfred and Oscar meet? What will happen at their meeting? Will Oscar ever write anything else? Find out next week. (laughs) With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. We hope you enjoyed the first of our two-part episode on Oscar Wilde. If you would like to, in the meantime, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. 
You can also email us directly at careersfact at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this or any of our other episodes, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on your podcast site of choice. We would especially appreciate it if you could leave us a review and a rating on iTunes as it really helps us find new listeners. Just a reminder that after this month, so the month of October, we will be having a break. We won't be bringing any episodes out in November. We also just wanted to quickly note that we've had a few comments on volume recently and we will be taking some steps to try and improve that a little bit over the break. If you are having problems with volume and you want to let us know, we would really appreciate that and we'd appreciate if you could tell us which episodes it's affecting or if it's affecting all of them because we're not sure if it's just like people listen to the first few, which were worse because we didn't know what we were doing (laughs) and it's not actually that big a problem now or maybe it's a huge problem. So feel free to get in touch with us regarding that. Our next episode will be out on the 15th of October and it will of course be finishing up our discussion about the life of Oscar Wilde. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.